Well, as I said, it's a delight to be here. Um, anytime you have an opportunity to travel during the COVID-19 era that we're in, it's, I, you, take, you, take the, you take the opportunity, and that's, I'm glad that I was invited. And I look forward to hearing uh, from you in terms of your questions and comments. The, the, the topic of, of, of this talk is a law without a lawgiver, question mark, why natural rights require a divine source. Essentially, what I'm going to offer to you this evening is a kind of argument as to why I think you ought to believe that the moral law, if there is a moral law, depends on God for its authority and existence. So, um, the subtitle is Why Natural Rights Require a Divine Source. So let me say, let me just briefly define what natural rights are. And then I'm going to move on to discuss uh, how they're connected to the idea of natural law. We're going to go over many concepts this evening, each of which, to a certain extent, we can actually have independent lectures just on those concepts. So I expect uh, from you guys questions uh, perhaps about those concepts, clarifications, and so forth. So, um, so let's begin. Natural rights. What, what is a natural right? Um, or what is uh, a right? Um, uh, a right that one has by nature that a government is obligated to recognize. Um, but a right... So think about what, what some of our, we think of our fundamental rights in, as citizens of the United States. We think of the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly and association and so forth. Those are legal rights. Those are what are sometimes called positive rights. They're called positive rights because they are posited by human governments. But we, we like to think that they are tightly tethered to something beyond those governments. So, for example, freedom of speech. Why would freedom of speech be good? And you could think of several reasons, right? Well, speech is a way to communicate. Communication involves knowledge, and it's good that human beings could, can know. In other words, it's, part, it's, a good, it's, it's good, in fact, for human beings to acquire knowledge. But it's also good to communicate because it may lead to things like friendship. In fact, in, in, in a way, communication is one of the, the best way to facilitate friendship, which is itself a good. Freedom of religion. We think of religion typically as connected to those things that are sort of beyond human understanding, those things that are transcendent, right? And so if human beings are ordered towards an ultimate good, it would seem that having something like freedom of religion protected by a government would be a good thing. And so any one of these rights, uh, that these sort of positive rights that we can think of, we tend to, if we really kind of reflect on it, we tend to think that they are kind of not, not simply good because the authority says so, but we think of them as sort of independently good in some way or another. So, so, what about the idea of natural law? So, so it seems to me that a natural right 
where natural right presupposes a natural moral law. Um, so what do, what do we mean by natural law? Natural law is the idea that there are fundamental precepts to which human beings are obligated to, to abide or obey. So here's a kind of very brief way of, of sort of connecting the idea of natural law with human nature. There are some universal and immutable moral truths. Human beings have the capacity to know these truths. Human nature is the basis on which these moral truths are known. So, for example, uh, the belief that courage is a virtue, uh, at least according to, to most natural law theorists, or cowardice of vice is a universal and immutable truth of the natural law that humans, human beings have the capacity to, to know, and we know this on the basis of human nature. Well, what do we know about human nature? Well, that human beings are rational creatures in the sense we have the ability to reason, um, but we also have other sorts of inclinations as human beings. We have certain passions, right? Certain uh, movements of our emotions. And when you think about something like courage, courage is a kind of way of understanding how to act reasonably while mastering those emotions, right? Between, you know, fear and foolhardiness, right? So, so the traditional virtues, at least, come about as a consequence of reflecting on this aspect of human nature. Um, we often try to justify the positive law by appealing to the natural law. So think about uh, governments that issue statutes on matters like, like murder, um, theft, assault, and child abandonment. Governments make policies on those matters because they believe, governments believe that the common good is protected in some way. So when somebody says something like there ought to be a law against it or we should have a law, they're presupposing that there is a kind of moral insight that they've acquired that should be reflected in the positive law. And that's, a, that's an example of the way in which, at least according to the, the natural law tradition, human beings apply the natural law. Um, it's the, it's, the natural laws also uh, can be found um, in a very famous document, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Some of you may have read it or are familiar with it. I, this semester I'm teaching a course at Baylor called Contemporary Moral Problems, and I have my students uh, during the first two weeks of the semester read King's letter as well as the Platonic dialogue, the Crito. I don't know if you're familiar with Crito. It's a, it, it's, it, Socrates is in prison, and his friend Crito comes there to try to convince him to escape. And in the letter from Birmingham jail, King is in jail, and he's writing a letter in defense of his civil disobedience. And so I thought it would be interesting for the students to compare and contrast two figures who are 2,500 years apart uh, dealing with the question of imprisonment and trying to justify their actions. Uh, Socrates justifies not escaping by appealing to what he thinks are unassailable moral principles. And King defends his civil disobedience by appealing to unassailable moral principles. And that's why he concludes that 
there are laws that are unjust and aren't really laws. And there he actually cites in his defense not only Socrates, but Thomas Aquinas and, and St. Augustine. So, some other things about the natural law. It's the sort of reasoning, without the, this sort of reasoning, the reasoning you find in King and, and, and the Credo and other places, it's difficult to make sense of documents such as the Declaration of Independence the, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or some of the comments made by Justice uh, uh, Robert Jackson in his opening statements in the Nuremberg Trials. I don't know if you've uh, if ever studied the Nuremberg Trials, but R Justice Robert Jackson, who was an associate justice of the Supreme Court, was the lead attorney for the Allied powers in the prosecution of the Nazi war criminals. And it was actually quite controversial at the time to have the Nuremberg Trials because the argument at the time was that it would be wrong to prosecute even war criminals when there actually was no positive law that they were obviously violating. And part of Robert Jackson's case was that they had violated laws against humanity, that they had committed crimes against humanity. In other words, appealing to this understanding of the natural law. The counter to that, I mean, there were people at the time that thought the Nazis should be prosecuted or, or they should be punished, but they didn't like the idea of the Nuremberg trials. They thought it was came too close to sounding like post facto law. And so one writer for the Atlantic uh, Monthly said they should just be taken out to the Black Forest and shot <laughs> without a trial. And uh, the counter to that on the part of those that defended Nuremberg is that we have to teach people the importance of even giving the Nazi war criminals due process. <laughs> that that, that what, what the way we differ from how they've conducted themselves is that we believe that even people that have been accused of heinous crimes are entitled to a defense. Again, appealing to a kind of natural law reasoning. And the Nuremberg trials uh, occurred and, and, and many were prosecuted. Uh, you could actually watch if you want to. If, uh, the, um, you, there are films of the executions on YouTube if, if, you can, if you're the sort of person that can watch that kind of thing. Um, most people can't. So, now it turns out that even the new atheists agree. Now, who are the new atheists? They're, they're really not new anymore. Um, for many of you, you were like in grammar school when they first published their, 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 their books. Uh, in the early 2000s, there were uh, four writers, uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett that published best-selling books defending atheism. Uh, Hitchens is, is, is uh, no longer with us, but uh, Harris and... and, and and, and Dawkins are, and so is Dennett. And it's interesting, if you read their books, especially Dennett, excuse, excuse me, especially Dawkins and Hitchens, some of their criticisms of religious belief presuppose a kind of natural moral law. So for example, uh, Dawkins uh, says, the atheist view is correspondingly life-affirming and life-enhancing, while at the same time never being tainted with self-delusion, wishful thinking, or the wingering self-pity of those who feel that life owes them something. So to kind of unpack that, I mean, there's a lot of moral presuppositions there, right? Uh, one is that uh, it's good to affirm life, right? There's a presupposition of the importance of human flourishing, 
that self-delusion is bad, right? This kind of presupposes a kind of ordered self, right? That we're obligated to actually uh, respond to in an appropriate way. Um, by the way, how many of you know where that cartoon is from? Okay, I just wanted to find it. It's one of my favorite episodes, by the way. Um, so Christopher Hitchens, a much better writer than Dawkins. Um, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Right? So what you find here in Hitchens are certain moral judgments, very strong moral judgments, claims that, uh, in a sense, presuppose that there is something that we are morally obligated to abide by apart from governments, right? Because clearly he would not accept the argument that, oh, the people in the past just simply had a different understanding than us uh, because after all, everything's relative. He wouldn't accept that at all. He would say that, no, the, the wickedness of these religious practitioners is a judgment that is always true, right? So, it seems as though that we have a kind of, most people have some kind of moral intuition, a moral intuitions about acting or how they ought to act in terms of acting justly and fairly. So now I want to move on. Um, now that we've gone over what, what exactly is meant by the natural law, uh, I want to talk about what does it mean when we, when we make a moral claim. So here I want to make four observations about the natural law. And, and much of what I'm going to say here comes from a, uh, a book I co-authored with uh, Gregory Kokel called Relativism Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. It came out 22 years ago. And uh, Greg's uh, second to last chapter, he, the one he authored, uh, much of what I say here, it's, it's slightly edited. It's a little different than the way Greg presents it. Uh, it comes from that, that contribution. So by the way, when I talk about the nature of the moral law, what I'm, what I'm asking is, what kind of thing is the moral law? So if I ask the question, what kind of thing is a face mask? Right, you can say that it's a physical thing made out of cloth and it has a particular shape and size and it fits over my face. You can sort of describe what it is, right? If I ask you, what is a human being? And if you are, let's say, uh, deeply well-read in Aristotelian philosophy, you would say human beings are rational animals, right? Or something along those lines, right? You would, you would give some kind of definition uh, of what it is, right? So what I'm saying here about the moral law is, well, what, what can we say about it that, that, we seem, that we seem to know? So four observations about the natural moral law. If the moral law exists, it is not physical. It's not a physical thing. It does not have physical properties. It has no extension, weight, chemical characteristics, and we don't discover it by empirical observation. Or at least empirical observation as understood by the hard sciences. Because there's a sense in which, if you mean empirical, is simply experience 
You could say that you can learn the moral law through experience, but it's not the sort of thing that can sort of be tested, right, in the same way if, let's say, you test a scientific theorem. Uh, it's discovered through reflection and introspection, non-inferential acts of understanding. If a natural moral law truly exists and is not physical, then materialism as a worldview is false. Second observation about morality, uh, moral laws are a form of communication. Um, here, all I'm saying is that they have cognitive content. It's not to say that people can't disagree about the precise meaning of a moral term or idea. So if I say, for example, uh, let's say I'm in a political debate and I say policy X is unfair, you may think that it's fair and we can have a debate about it. And when we get into sort of the nitty gritty details, it may turn out that we have slightly different understandings of what constitutes fairness. But at the end of the day, there is going to be enough commonality where we can have a conversation. In other words, there's cognitive content to it. Moral laws uh, are propositions that can be in the forms of imperatives, like one ought to keep one's promises, commands, keep your promises, and descriptions like true knowledge is good. Third observation about the moral law, moral laws have an incumbency to them. Another way of putting it, they have an oughtness to them. You have a sense of a kind of tugging at your heart. I think we've, we should have all experienced this at least once in our life, maybe more. If you've never experienced it, that's not good. Uh, it's a sense of obligation, a sense of a kind of con your conscience talking to you like the little... Homer Angel is talking, right? Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, uh, I was invited to speak at a youth group at a church, and I really wanted, didn't want to do it. And I remember kind of this, this real sense of incumbency. <laughs> you should do it, you promised. Right? And, and again, we've, we've all, we should have all had this experience of some, of, of some sort. And, and it could either work in, in, in one direction in the sense of, keep, let's say, keeping a promise. It could also work in another direction, right? Resisting, let's say, temptations, right? But this is the kind of incumbency of morality, right? And it's something that's different than, let's say, um, let's say, our relationship to other sets of ideas. We don't have this about mathematics, for example. Even though mathematics, if it's real, is immaterial and universal and unchanging. Yet nobody sort of you know, feels guilty about 2 plus 2 equals 5, right? So there's a kind of oughtness in math, but it doesn't have the same kind of oughtness right, that you do in, with moral claims. And finally, Violating moral laws typically results in deep discomfort. When we violate clear moral rules, we have an ethical pain, a sense that we deserve to be punished. This is called guilt. Only sociopaths succeed in overcoming their conscience completely. So it's something that everyone, unless they're a saint or a sociopath, has had. Right? It's what uh, Greg calls a sense of ethical pain.
So to review, four observations about the natural moral law. If the moral law exists, it, it's not physical. It's not a physical thing. Uh, the moral law is a form of communication. It has cognitive content. The moral law has, it, has an incumbency to it. And then finally, violating the moral law typically or ought to result in deep discomfort. So does the moral law require a divine source? And what I'm going to talk about here is also slightly adapted from Greg's contribution to our book, as well as a chapter from my own book, uh, the last chapter of my own book, Politics for Christians. So there, there, I'm going to go over three options here. Uh, there are probably are more options. Uh, I have a, a book chapter that I published about 18 years ago where I go over some other options about the origin or the source of the moral law. There's one that's fairly well known for um, students of political philosophy, uh, a kind of state of nature view of morality, and we don't have time to go over that. Uh, but what I've decided to do is go over three options. Um, and the first option is that the moral law is relative. The second option is the moral law is a mere accident, a product of chance. And third, the moral law is grounded in a transcendent mind. So let's go over, the of the three up there, I mean, in terms of what is at least the most popular among certain academics that write in, 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 in this area, um, or, or those that, that uh, want to sort of reject any sort of, of um, moral law as a real thing, uh, the second is the most, um, the most prominent, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on that one. And it's usually connected to what is sometimes called sociobiology, uh, and, and uh, its defenders include, most notably, uh, Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson. Uh, Roos is a philosopher, E.O. Wilson, a scientist at Harvard. He's retired now. So let's just talk about, we'll just briefly mention relativism. Um, uh, I'm not going to spend any time on relativism. Uh, I'm assuming that, uh, that everything that I said at the very beginning when talking about uh, uh, the natural moral law uh, my citations of Dawkins and Hitchens, that even they accept in some degree an understanding of morality that is not conventional, that's not dependent on uh, human institutions, that there's a sense in which uh, there is something beyond uh, ourselves when it comes to uh, the moral law. Um, there's a whole nother lecture here <laughs> on what's wrong with relativism, and we don't have time to go over that. That's why I began with citing there's a wide variety of people who, held, who hold to some view of a natural moral law, even uh, atheists like uh, Hitchens and Dawkins. Although, I'll tell you one story. Uh, this is was a class I was teaching at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I, I, my first job was at UNLV. Uh, I actually grew up in Las Vegas. And, after earning my PhD, I got hired at UNLV and I was teaching a class. And I had a student, very bright student, 
And she would always challenge me in class, which I very much encourage in, in my students. And she asked me when we were going over the issue of relativism, she said, she said, why is the truth important? And I answered, do you want the true answer or the false one? So the point is that sometimes it's not really a, it's not really a, a that, that quip is not really a defense of, of the natural moral law, but it's, it's a lesson that sometimes the answer to your question is sort of baked into the question, right? So, so when, when, when somebody raises the question about the natural moral law and has skepticism about it, if you think about it, the very inquiry presupposes that we are in fact rational creatures entitled to reasons, which actually itself kind of presupposes a kind of respect and dignity that we should, by which we should treat one another. So intellectual in inquiry, I think in and of itself, presupposes a whole cluster of moral assumptions. Uh, we would tend to call them intellectual virtues, but I do think they're also moral virtues as well. All right, so let's go to the second option. The moral law is mere accident, a product of chance. And here I want to go over two options. One I call sub-option A, and this is the um, what I call the brute fact argument. Uh, and it goes something like this. The moral law is just a brute fact. It just exists. It, it's, it's just there. And it's always been there as long as Homo sapiens have been here, but there's no need to try to explain it. It's, it's just there. Um, it requires no explanation. But it seems to me that the appeal to a brute fact is like sweeping the dirt into the trash can or under the rug and then claiming that there's no longer any dirt. A contingent fact like the moral law by its nature cannot account for itself. Also, a moral law, moral laws that have no ground or justification need not be obeyed. So imagine if while playing Scrabble, the letters randomly spell go to Baltimore or persevere. Should you obey the command? Or supposing you're eating alphabet soup and your name is Bob and you have a fairly large spoon and the letters happen to spell B-O-B, does that mean that your soup is actually communicating with you? Now, I would be concerned if your name were Nebuchadnezzar and, and whoa, you know, uh, that would be, um, you know, or Thurston Howell III or something like that, you, you should be probably, you know, either seek help or, uh, you know, seek out a priest or an exorcist. <laughs> um, so wh why don't we obey those commands? Because a chance created phrase um, isn't actually communication, right? So, so you, let's say I drove into College Station and you don't have that many hills here, but so for this illustration to work, let's imagine there's a mountain in College Station. On the side of the mountain, it says, Welcome to College Station. And I pull into Texas A&M, and I check in at the hotel, and I tell the woman at the front desk, Oh, it's nice that you have on the side of the mountain, Welcome to College Station. I feel warmly welcomed. And she says, Oh, that's, 
that's not supposed to be there. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, we used to have a big letter factory there, and there's a really bad fire, and it blew up, and the letters happened to fall to spell, welcome to College Station. So we're really not welcoming you. That would change. No longer is that statement really a statement anymore, right? There's actually no mind behind it. it. Chance may possibly create the appearance of a moral command, but since no one is speaking uh, such a command, we can safely ignore it. All right, so let's move on now to the, ex the next uh, option, sub-option B for the claim the moral law is a mere accident or a product of chance, and this is far more sophisticated. This is the view that the moral law is a product of naturalistic ev evolution. And this is the option that is offered by Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson. Now, I say naturalistic evolution because I don't believe that uh, Darwinian evolution is inconsistent with belief in God. Uh, so I, I, I want to clear, I just, that's why I call it naturalistic evolution. That is a view that everything that we see today in terms of or living organisms is the result of a process behind which there is no providence. So what is the Roos-Wilson option? Let me, well, before I go over the problems, let me read to you uh, something that they say in an article called The Evolution of Ethics, which was published in 1984. In fact, in the class that I, I mentioned earlier, the one that I'm teaching this semester at Baylor, uh, my students read uh, this article uh, before we get into actual moral issues uh, like abortion and, and physician-assisted suicide and so forth. We talk about what are called meta-ethical issues. What is the sort of grounding of ethics? And so one of the issues we deal with is, is the Wilson uh, Roos essay. And um, so this is what, uh, this is what uh, Wilson and, and Roos say in their essay. The question is not whether biology, specifically our evolution, is connected with ethics, but how? As evolutionists, we see that no justification of the traditional kind is possible. Morality, or more strictly, our belief in morality, is merely an adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends. Hence, the basis of ethics does not lie in God's will. In an important sense, ethics, as we understand it, is an illusion fobbed on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. It is without external grounding. Ethics is illusory inasmuch as it persuades us that it has an objective reference. This is the crux of the biological position. Once it is grasped, everything falls into place." Unquote. So what are they saying here? They're saying that for human beings to as living organisms to survive and pass on their genetic materials to the next generation, holding the belief that there is a real moral law is advantageous. But ultimately, there is no moral law to which it refers. Now, one of the interesting things that, about the Roos Wilson article is they pretty much say that everything that I talked about early on about these kind of beliefs, general beliefs that people have about the good are fairly universal. But they want to say that 
there is no actual referent to a real moral law. We sort of have been deceived by our genes. All right, does everyone follow that? So there's a there's a so so it's not that they are saying they're not saying that people don't believe it or they don't act as if it's true generally. They're saying that there actually is no real moral law. And I think the one of the motivations for this on the part of Roos and Wilson is that they understand that if in fact there is a reference, something that Michael, he's, Michael Roos is a friend of mine, uh, we just had an exchange, uh, in, uh, a, a textbook just came out on, on, on ethics and we were invited to, to kind of debate each other in the textbook. And so one of the things that, that Michael argues, he, he says that if in fact there is this kind of reference, then it would mean that he thinks it would be odd. It wouldn't fit sort of his materialistic kind of scientific view of the world. And so one thing that's motivating him is that. And for this reason, he also thinks that something like mathematics uh, doesn't, is, is not, he's, he's an anti-realist when it comes to something like mathematics because he sees that once you concede that uh, abstract objects like mathematical objects could be real, uh, that means that there would have to be something like uh, either a platonic realm of ideal entities or eternally in the mind of God, and neither of which is consistent with what he believes is the best worldview in terms of accounting for the way in which we live, namely this kind of materialistic, scientific materialism. Okay, so... Um, What's wrong with this view? I'm going to go over some crit criticisms of it. Um, first criticism, the naturalist evolutionary theory of the, of the natural moral law cannot properly account for motive and intent. This, mere, this theory merely describes behavior, but morality entails more, inclu more including motive and intent. One can be immoral without any behavior simply on the basis of motive and intent. Um, so, for example, uh, supposing I tell you that, you know, the police are after me and I'm going to hide in room, what room are we in right now? 2406? So, so I say I'm going to hide in 2408. I don't know if there really is a 2408, but... Let's pretend there is. So I'm going to hide in 2408. Um, uh, but then when I go there, I kind of have doubts about you. So I decide to go to 2410. And so you wind up telling the police officer 2410 because you want to protect me. You actually wind up telling him the truth, but you've acted immorally because you intended to deceive. On the other hand, you could say 2408 after I'd moved to 2410, even though what you said was false, you didn't lie. We, we, we make judgments about people's actions, oftentimes based on their motive and intent, not necessarily the consequences. So an example that C.S. Lewis uses in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about the young man that attempts to trip a woman on the train and he doesn't succeed and she's fine and compares that to 
another young man who actually accidentally trips the woman. And we, we typically, and she's, let's say, hurt. We typically would say that the second acted, you may say act negligently, but he clearly was not as immoral as the person that intentionally tried it. But remember for, for um, Roos and um, Wilson, it's all about the behavior. Right? It's all about the physical acts. It seems as though there's more to, to, to morality than that. Second problem, why be good tomorrow? So here I want to argue that the best that the Roos-Wilson theory can do is describe how we have acquired our moral sentiments. So it's a, great, it's a story that says, look, the reason why sometimes you feel an incumbency to be kind or to act altruistically is because those types of feelings have advantageous survival value. That's why you have them. And I, for all I know, that's absolutely correct, right? That's how I acquired them. But it doesn't tell me why I should obey them. Why is it I should follow this moral rule that I should be kind? Now, you could tell a kind of um, like self, a story, an egoistic story. You can say, well, because it'll, it'll benefit you. Yeah, but that's not really, doesn't, tells me why it, it, it's just good to be altruistic in itself. Right. So the best that it does, it seems to me, it, it tells me that, um, uh, doesn't tell me how I ought to act on those feelings. It just tells me that how I acquired them. And, and even if you, if you look at, let's say, people in the past, our, our, our predecessors, all the people that existed for thousands of years who acted and behaved in ways that eventually resulted in us and our moral intuitions. But if you look at human history, it's a pretty strange bunch, isn't it? It includes all sorts of people, right? People that we consider saints, people that we consider wicked, right? How do we, how, the, how we distinguish who the saints and the wicked people are? I mean, why, why follow the people that we think were saints and not the wicked ones. How, in other words, you need a kind of morality above morality by which to assess people in the past. In fact, one of the great mysteries of, of morality and something that C.S. Lewis brings in, up in his first five chapters of mere Christianity is that we, we have this sense of what we ought to do and at the same time, we know we don't live up to it. So it's not really a matter of sort of counting noses, right? Saying, oh, well, most people think this way. Most people know what's right, and most people know that they sometimes don't act consistently with it. That's the mystery. All right. Um, problem three. It proves too much. It proves too much. Why don't we, why don't we apply Roos and Wilson's theory to all our beliefs? If one's belief in the moral law can be attributed entirely to survival value rather than to a real moral law, why not apply the same reasoning to our other beliefs? Why aren't the other beliefs that my cognitive faculties entertain subject to the same sort of analysis? After all, the same mind that entertains moral beliefs also can, entertains beliefs about art, literature, 
science, philosophy, mathematics, and the existence of other people. Perhaps they too deceive me as well and really don't refer to anything except to beliefs that help me survive. So here's a thing I found online. Um, the statement on the back of this shirt is false, and the statement on the front of this shirt is true. <laughs> There's a kind of self-refuting aspect to this. That is, if, if, if the intuitions that most people have that there's a natural moral law refer, don't refer to a real moral law, and it's the result of the development of our cognitive faculties as a result of evolution, well, why select the moral law as the one that doesn't refer to anything real rather than all our other intuitions and deliverances of reason? There's another way to put it. If our biology tricks us into believing that there's a natural moral law, perhaps our biology tricks us into believing that our biology tricks us into believing that there is a natural moral law. So option three, the option I think is the correct option, what sort of intelligence, if we, if we accept the third option, the natural law is grounded in a transcendent mind, what sort of intelligence this, could this be? Um, so let me just, before I go into that, let me just briefly summarize what we've done so far. Given that options one and two fail, or at least I think they fail, and given our four observations about the nature of the moral law, it must have its source in an intelligence, but only a transcendent one, a mind that can by its nature be the same, be the source of the natural moral law. So it can't be a finite mind or a contingent intelligence, one whose existence and moral authority is dependent on something else outside itself. For in order to be the ground of the moral law, a being must not receive its existence and moral authority for, from another. For that being, if it is not contingent, would then be the ground of the natural moral law. And here I have up on the screen all sorts of kind of superhuman figures from both mythology and contemporary cinema. Right, there's Q from Star Trek. I don't know if you guys are Star Trek fans. Um, and then Thor and uh, Spock, right? So if you say, well, you know, the source of the moral law are simply, you know, a kind of super version of, of human beings, but somehow superior, uh, they, the same problem, you're just sort of pushing the problem back just one one generation, right, so to speak. So therefore, the source of the moral law must be a self-existent, perfect, perfect being, perfectly good being who has the juridical authority that requires that we owe him our duty to obey. It seems only fitting to call such a being God. And here I'm going to conclude with a quote from the philosopher Richard Taylor. A duty is something that is owed, but something can be owed only to some person or persons. There can be no such thing as a duty in isolation. The concept of a moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but the meaning is gone. Thank you and look forward to hearing your questions.